So this morning we're going to talk about deacons. Uh, you guys know typically we go through books of the Bible at a time and sections of Scripture at a time. This morning is more topical, so we're going to be all over the place in Scripture. Poor Bree has like 20 slides, I think, that she's got to try to keep up with me. Um, but the goal this morning is to talk about deacons. So I wanted to begin by just asking a question. How many of you have been in a church in the past where there were deacons? I'm just curious, how many? All right, so not a ton, but some. All right, good. Well, you may know or remember that I said that uh, about six months ago, Tyler Jordan and I started doing a study on deacons. And then we spent about a, almost a full day in September just looking at all the scriptures on deacons and trying to figure out what does God want us to do as a church? What do we believe about deacons and how would we want to implement that as a church? And so this morning I want to share the role and the qualifications for deacons. I want to talk about that with you. Now, you may be wondering, um, for those of you who have been in churches where there are deacons, you may be thinking, so we're in year 10 of a church plant. What took you so long, Matt, to bring this up? Why, why did we not talk about this sooner? Because um, maybe your experience is that Deacons have always been part of your church experience. And so if you remember, which I don't expect you to, because this is like year one of the church plant, we were in the book of Ephesians together. And when we got to chapter four in the book of Ephesians, we got to this uh, verse 11 where it says, and he gave, Jesus gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And we discovered in that time together that the word ministry is the word for deacon or deaconing for building up the body of Christ. So in this case, Jesus gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the sole purpose of equipping the saints to be deacons. Question. Is a deacon, does deacon mean ministry? Good idea. Yes, it does. It means ministry. We can jump ahead if you want. It means ministry. It also means to serve. So if I saw you serve, I could say, good job deaconing. Good job being a deacon. Because that's really what it means. It means to serve. So yes, it's exactly what it means. You just read my notes ahead of me. <laughs> and specifically when it's used in scripture and in other uh, literature that was written during that time, it means to care for the poor or the sick or the needy. It actually means to wait tables or to supply food for people in need. So I don't know if it's helpful or not, but when you hear the word deacon, I almost thought this week of it's almost like a waiter or a waitress slash nurse all woven into one who goes out and cares for all people's different needs that they have along the way. But it's used in broader senses than that in Scripture. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service. That's the word for deacons. There's a variety of ways that people deacon, or a variety of ways that people serve. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4, we find this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve or deacon one another as good stewards or good deacons of God's very grace. Varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves or deacons as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So everyone is given a grace gift, a spiritual gift of some kind, and we are to use it to serve one another with the strength that God provides for the glory of God. So that means everybody who's a follower of Jesus Christ is a deacon. I don't know if you knew that about yourself this morning, but you are a deacon. And Jesus used this word a bunch in the Gospels. In Matthew 23, he said this, The greatest among you, among you shall be your deacon, your servant. 
Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So a deacon, a servant of Jesus, is, a Jesus is someone who is humble. And then in John 12, he says this, If anyone serves or deacons me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant or my deacon will be also. If anyone serves, again the word deacon, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So just sharing this with you to help you see that if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are a deacon. So in the past 10 years, if someone has asked you, so does your church believe in deacons? Does your church have deacons? The answer would be yes. And they would say, oh, really, how many? And you would say, lots, <laughs> all of us. <laughs> if you're a disciple of Jesus, you actually are a deacon. That's truth from God's word. So we really have had, in this sense, deacons. But then we come to Jesus himself, where he calls himself the deacon. <laughs> he is the deacon in Mark 10. He said, for even the Son of Man came, to, came not to be served or deaconed, but to serve. He came to be a deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, so Jesus himself, as a servant, calls himself a deacon. He's the ultimate deacon. And he's a deacon as he paid his life as a ransom for many. And I think there's something to learn here from this at two different levels, if you will. First is, what the heck does it mean for him to give his life as a ransom? You guys know what ransoms are. You see enough movies, right, where somebody holds a ransom, you know, I won't let him go until you give me the money, that kind of thing. So here it says that Jesus paid the ransom. And so the question is, what, what did he pay, and to whom did he pay it? Did he pay the ransom to the devil for our sin? Well, just so you know, hell no. <laughs> he definitely didn't do that. When, when Jesus is on earth, they bow to him, and he tells them what to do. There's no bargaining going on with Satan. He's in charge. He wins the day. They bow, and they go away at his command. So that's not happening. So I just want to share this with you because this is important because I think it needs to inform how we think about deacon. It broadens our perspective of deacon. It makes it more glorious when we think about the idea of a deacon this way. So Romans chapter 3 says this, that we are justified whole sermon there. Everybody knows what that word means, right? Forgiven from our sins and clothed. Good. Forgiven and clothed. Forgiven and clothed. We are justified. Forgiven and clothed by his grace as a gift through the redemption. That's that word redeemed. Jesus said he came to give his life as a ransom for many, that through the redemption, the ransom that is in Christ Jesus. And he tells us now what the ransom is. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his Blood. So we love that word. Everyone want to say the word propitiation with me? Propitiation. Big word. We know what it means? What's it mean? To turn away the wrath of God. Excellent. To turn away the wrath of God. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah, and then Jesus talks about it. It's God, Jesus drinking the wrath of God. All of it. The cup is filled with God's wrath. Jesus drinks it on the cross. So propitiation means that he is a wrath remover. So, in essence, you could say that Jesus paid the penalty, the, the ransom for the wrath of God that we should have paid. So, the ransom was really paid by God, for God, or to God. It's all about God. And we couldn't do that on our own because we don't have the ability to ransom ourselves because we're the sinners that need to be ransomed. One, one theologian put it this way. He said, that's the big issue when it comes to the wrath of God, he says. That's the big issue. 
That's the biggest problem in the universe, God's wrath. And by the shedding of blood, we have escaped the wrath of God. The blood ransoms. It redeems from the wrath of God. Christ died to rescue us from God's wrath because we could never, ever pay the massive debt of glory that we owed to the Father. The payment was the blood of Christ exalting and restoring the glory of God. So when you think about Jesus being a deacon, he was a deacon that gave his life as a ransom to remove God's wrath from you. So I just don't want you to think small about this word. I think it's what I want. I want you, you can hear the word deacon. I want your heart to soar to the reality that God used to be really angry at you, really angry, and you deserved eternal damnation. But Jesus the deacon came and gave his life so you could be ransomed. No fear of God's anger anymore. That's really good news. And you know, it's not just we're not afraid of his anger, but we've got his blessing. So that's our Jesus the deacon our Jesus the deacon. He was the deacon that served all the way to death so that the wrath of God could be appeased. And you and I today get to act like Jesus as we deacon, as we live our lives and give up our lives to advance the gospel. So we can learn, I think, from that that really a deacon is someone who gives up our lives. And isn't that what a disciple is, right? Jesus said it over and over again, that we're supposed to be dead to ourselves, to give up our lives, to take up our cross for others. And that's the definition of a deacon. We give up our lives. So you, you pull all these together, what Jesus said and what we read in the epistles, and we conclude that every disciple of Jesus is a deacon. And deacons serve with God's strength. They serve for God's glory. They serve in humility. And they serve sacrificially. So that's the definition or the categories that go around this idea of a deacon. It's someone who gives up their life for the sake of serving others. So that's why, over the past 10 years, I've intentionally avoided this idea of appointing people to be deacons, as opposed to appointing all of us to be deacons. Because I know the tendency of my heart that if I, we had had deacons and an issue arose in the church or a need, I would respond with something like, oh, don't we have deacons to take care of that? Instead of me realizing, no, 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 I am the deacon that's supposed to take care of that, and that's why I am now aware of the situation. So that's what I've been hoping to lay as a foundation for us as a church for the last 10 years, that we would really believe in our hearts that you are a deacon set apart to serve others sacrificially for the glory of God and by his strength. But as you probably already know, there's two other places, at least in Scripture, that talk about deacon differently. It talks about more of an office or a role or a position. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. So there's two places that happens. The first is in uh, Philippians chapter 1. It's going to go on the screen. The second one we're going to have to all turn our Bibles to, but let's just look at Philippians 1.1 1, 1 first. This is one of the first ones that Tyler and Jordan and I started to work through together to try to make sure we understood it correctly and that we were applying it correctly. So this is the beginning of Philippians. This is the greeting. This is the hello part of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. So Paul and Timothy say this. And I want you to notice the categories that are there. Paul and Timothy, servants 
or bond slaves of Christ Jesus to all the saints, so there's the first group of people, the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with or including, he's going to mention two groups of people, the overseers and who? The deacons. So it seems that he's addressing the saints, meaning everyone, and then he addresses these groups of overseers and deacons. Now, if all he meant by deacons were all the saints, right, then it would be a little repetitive. Wouldn't it be kind of weird if he said to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, with or including all the overseers and the saints? Or if both of them said deacons, it would be kind of weird. So I think we read this, sorry to have your, our brains are going to be really engaged this morning as we walk through some of these passages, but it seemed like he's talking about to all the saints and then including these two categories of people, overseers and deacons. And there's a subcategory of deacons that are included in the saints, but they're distinct from the saints. Does that make sense? So as we read this, okay, there's some kind of little sign for us that there's some kind of other group of people that are called deacons that work together with overseers. And the reason why we think they're two separate groups that way is because we do know that other places in Scripture, there's the office of overseer. And so he's putting them paired together with deacons, and we have to assume that, okay, that means the deacons must also play some kind of role. They must have an office. They must function in a specific way different than all the saints. So that's how those two, I think, work together. Now, on its own, this passage is helpful, but leaves lots of questions, doesn't it? I mean, for me, it leaves lots of questions. So now we turn, if you don't mind getting at your Bible, and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is the primary place that describes deacons. First Timothy chapter 3. When you're there, say, got it. Got it? What is he asking? If you're not there, say, don't got it. But I don't want to embarrass anybody, so. <laughs> I'm listening for a certain amount of volume from got it to find out if we really got it. All right. So First Timothy 3. This is Paul writing to Timothy. And here's what he says. Verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, the ch- for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So there's overseer, pastor, elder, bishop, call him what you want. That's that office, he says. That's the office of overseer. Then verse 9, he says this, Deacons likewise. Okay, so there's going to be, see the word likewise? There's going to be some similarities now between what he just said about the office of pastor, shepherd, overseer, 
with this, now, this new role called deacon. So deacons likewise, now he's going to tell us about them. They must be dignified, not, t- not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their, lo- their wives, likewise, back to as just like overseers, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I, I sent the email out this week to give you the passages ahead of time, hoping you'd have time to read them because I know we're moving quickly. And so that's what I'll, I'll tell you right now. Wednesday night is for us to have basically a big group of three to review and apply the passage and to ask questions and talk about it. So I know I'm moving quickly, but I'm just going to bring you observations that Tyler, Jordan, and I drew from what I just read to you. So the first is this, that there seems to be two offices, deacon and overseer. So there's two positions, if you will, within the church, two roles that are played in the church. Separate from everyone being a deacon, there's some group of people that are called deacons, they're given that title, and then there are overseers. Second observation, the qualifications for both the overseer and the deacon, if you looked at it, they're pretty similar, aren't they? They're pretty similar. The only difference is able to teach. Officer, the office of overseer, that, that individual has to be able to teach. But a deacon, it seems, doesn't have to be able to teach. Okay, so there's a distinction there. The character qualifications are for both of these lists, just want to make this observation, aren't unique just to elders and or overseers and deacons. I would hope that all of us are aspiring to that list, right? All of us are aspiring to not be drunkards or double-tongued or slanderers or greedy, right? So it's not like this is a unique list like, oh... They're the really spiritual ones, and the rest of us aren't so spiritual. No, this list is for everyone, but it's got to be unique for these two groups of people within the church, the deacon and the elder. That's what he says to us here. Which leads me to the fourth observation that we made from this passage, and it's this. God's primary concern for both the overseer and the deacon is character. Is character is character. It's not giftedness, per se. It's character. In fact, there's almost really no job description here. If this is all you had and you read this, what does a deacon do? It doesn't tell us anything about what a deacon does. Now, we know why. What does a deacon do? Good. Good. Those are all characteristics of what a, what a deacon needs to be like. Very good. Yes, those are characteristics of a deacon. That's good. So we can't do those things, then they shouldn't serve as a deacon. So all we know here is that they serve, right? They're meant to be servants. They should serve others. But there's really no other job description here except really for that. But there's one other thing that we need to understand from this. So you get where he's going here. It's all about character. That's most important. Character for deacons is the top thing, more important than any kind of clear job description. But there's something else in here that is a bit of a mystery, and that is verse 11. Oh, the mystery of verse 11. 
Oh, the divisiveness that have happened over verse 11. So verse 11 says this, Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, maybe some of you don't understand why this is a mystery and why it's confusing. Some of you don't understand why it's a mystery or confusing. So let me tell you why it's a mystery or why it's confusing. Because even though the ESV translates this, verse 11, their wives, the word there for their wives, first of all, the word there is not even there in the Greek originally. That's supplied to fill out the sentence. The word wives there is actually just a word for women, which can also be translated as wives. So you've got to choose which one it is. Does that make sense? I could say that Lydia is a woman, but she's not a wife. I can say Elspeth is a woman, but she is a wife. So there's these two different ways that it can function based on the context of the paragraph that it's in. And so we now, as good investigators, need to figure out which one is it. I have no idea. No, I'm joking. I want to lead you through a little bit to help you understand, I hope, why Tyler Jordan and I landed where we landed and to bring you along in that conversation, because this is something that is really split down the middle. I mean, literally half of the church in America leans one way, the other half really leans in the other. And so we want to explain to you why we landed where we landed. So let me see if I can do that. First, I already said the word there is not there in the Greek. It's just women or wives. But there are eight other times, I guess it's seven other times, there's eight times total in 1 Timothy where that word appears, the Greek word for women. So it's there eight times. Six of them it is very clear, I'm sorry, five of those, it is very clear that he's talking about women and not wives. So the word is translated five times before we get here, woman, 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 never wives. So that's the first thing. not saying that the game changer, but that's just a fact to keep in your mind. The other two times that it's used are here in the passage we just read in verse 2 and in verse 12. Both of them it says, the husband of one wife, which actually literally in the Greek reads, a one-woman man. Does that make sense? So it would be one thing for me to be a man who only has one wife, which is a good thing, right, that I don't have multiple wives. But the idea of being a one-woman man means my heart is only given to one woman. It's not scattered around a whole bunch of women. So it's not necessarily about me having a wife. It's about where's my heart and how many women are on my heart. And he's saying only one woman should be on an elder's heart and only one woman should be on a deacon's heart. So literally, that could also read woman and not wife. So that only leaves us with this one last time here in verse 8, I'm sorry, in verse 11, we have to decide, is it woman or is it wife? And I think we can conclude that it's pretty easily translated woman and not wife. Now, you guys know I love the ESV. I think this is as close to when I try to study the Greek to getting it right. So I appreciate it. And that's why I'm glad they put the footnote. Hopefully you guys have that little, whatever it is, a number or something in your Bible. And it tells you at the bottom, could be translated the other way. And I think, Jordan, Tyler, and I all think it should be and could be translated to just say, women likewise must be dignified and so on. So the first reason is context and the fact that the word there is not in the Greek. That's supplied by the translator. The other thing we need to pay attention to is how does this paragraph unfold we feel like we're in English class here. That's how I feel. How does a paragraph unfold sometimes helps you understand what the word should have meant or what the word really means, how we should understand it to mean? How is it structured? So there's arguments to how this paragraph, I'm looking specifically at verses 8 through 13. Verses 8 to 13 that support why it should be women 
and why it should be wives. And there's reasons for both. Do you want to hear both? <laughs> Let me see if I can walk you through this without boring us to death. Because the arguments are important, and I want you to know why we're concluding the things that we're concluding. If you notice, here's how it unfolds. Verses 8 to 10 is about deacons. Then verse 11 is either women or wives. Then verse 12 goes back to deacons. And verse 13 talks about deacons again. So there's this weird back and forth that almost gives you a little bit of a whiplash if you're trying to follow through. Why would he talk about deacons and then deacons' wives and then go back to deacons again? What is he doing and why? And so here's what Tyler and Jordan and I concluded from this. There's arguments for this both ways, like I said. Verses 8 to 10 is about deacons, generically speaking, men and women. So when you read verse 8, and it gives you those qualifications all the way to verse 10, it's about deacons, men and women. Then you get to verse 11, and he specifically talks about women deacons. Then in verse 12, he talks about male deacons. And then in verse 13, he talks about both male and female deacons again. So it's bookended. Does that make sense? All deacons, women deacons, men deacons, all deacons. And as we kept looking at this compared to other ways that Paul writes, it seems like that's what he's doing. He's doing a bookend here with male and female deacons, male and female deacons on the, or the bread. And in the middle, he's got something to say to their wives, or something to say to the women, and then something to say to the men. So that was another thing that played into this for us thinking and leaning in the direction that women should be deacons. But there's two more reasons. Two more reasons why. The first is that Paul, if, if, if this was talking about a deacon's wife, then why didn't Paul address the overseer's wife? Does that make sense? If he's going to address the deacon's wives, then you should address the overseer's wives. But because he doesn't address the overseer's wives, it makes sense that he probably isn't addressing the deacon's wives. He must be talking about women instead of male deacons. I hope that makes sense. That's one of the other reasons. The other reason is this. Paul is very clear that overseers are to be men. If he wanted to make it clear that deacons were to be men, he could have been just as clear. But he wasn't. That makes sense? If he's going to tell us the overseer, pastor, elder has to be a man, and he knew that deacons had to be a man, then he would have told us, but he didn't. So it's almost like a sil an argument from silence, if you will. Since he doesn't say it, it seems like he would have if he wanted to and he didn't, so that's how we should understand it. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> Good, I like to be confusing. So I hope that's helpful, this argument more from silence. So it seems to Tyler, Jordan, and I that it is good and right in God's desire for women to be deacons. And I want to be clear here because I know our culture is trying to convince us that there's no difference between men and women, that there's no difference. We're all the same. And I want you to know that that's not where Tyler and I and Jordan are going with all of this. We do believe men and women are equally created in the image of God. No question. We also believe that only men are to teach and preach and to lead and to be pastors and to be elders in the church. We believe women are the weaker vessel. We believe that men are desperately in need of help, and that's why God gave us helpers. So there are categories still, but in this area of the church, it seems right and good that we have both men and women serve in the role or the office of deacon. And then we get to another passage of Scripture that supports this, Romans, 10, or Romans 16. Romans 16 tells us this. I commend to you 
our sister Phoebe, a servant or a deacon of the church at Senecre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So this is another verse that gives us this idea that there's somebody, a, a, a lady, Phoebe, Phoebe, who is a servant. She's a deacon in the church that serves in a unique way, not just a deacon, meaning she's a servant like all believers, but she's uniquely a deacon in the role or the position of deacon. And so we, we can observe from this that she was a patron, a word we probably don't use as often, but she's a helper, someone who assisted people with their needs, that she served in a unique enough way that Paul singled her out and said, honor her. She's a servant of mine. So you, you read this and we can conclude one of two things. One is, at the most, she was a female deacon. At the very least, it tells us she served in a way that met the needs of the church just like a deacon would. Does that make sense? So this is just another, we're building blocks here as to what convinced us that, yes, we think that it's good and right for a woman to be a deacon. And then the final passage is in Acts 6. I don't think we have that on projection, so if you want to turn to Acts 6, we'll finish up there. Acts 6. Acts 6, beginning in verse 1, is the most controversial, if you will, passage about whether or not um, whether or not this passage is actually about the function and the role and the office of deacon or not. In other words, is this the first example of deacons in the Bible? Well, in the New Testament, because we see some examples in the Old, but in the New. So here's what happens in Acts 6. You guys there? All right, here we go. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we have appoint, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenes, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All right, sorry to have to walk you through so many different things here. When you read narrative, you've got to be thinking in two categories. Is this prescriptive or descriptive? You know, some of you probably have those categories when you read it. In other words, is it describing what happened or is it prescribing something we're supposed to do? Does that make sense? Is it describing something that took place or describing something that took place and we're supposed to do the same thing? So let me, let me give you an example. Maybe this is helpful. You guys know the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They sell property, right? 
and it says they, they bring the proceeds, the money from the sale of the property, and they lay it at the apostles' feet. And they say, we sold this property. Here's all the money from the property. And the Holy Spirit tells the apostles, that's not all the money. And what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? They both die as a result. If we were to say that this is prescriptive, telling us what to do, then, I don't know, every year or so, you all should sell something that's worth a lot. You should bring it here on a Sunday. You should lay it at Tyler Jordan's and my feet. You should tell us what you sold and how much you got for it. And then we'll listen to find out from the Holy Spirit whether or not you really sold it for that amount or whether you kept some of it. And if you didn't, Okay, there's an application for a way to take a passage of Scripture to say this is being prescriptive. It's telling us what we should do. Now, when I read that story, I read it differently, and I say, no, I think it's more descriptive, telling us something that happened. where There is lessons to be learned. There's application still, but it's not to be mimicked that way. So the question with this story that I just read in Acts 6 is, which is it? Which is it? Is it just describing what took place? Or is it telling us, here's what took place, and you do it exactly the same? So after a lot of discussion and research, Tyler and Jordan and I, we, we landed on that it is mostly descriptive. It's describing what happened, but there's principles to steal from it because there's principles that we see elsewhere in Scripture. Does that make sense? So there's principles we're taking from it, but it's mostly describing a situation. So we're going to look at the situation and say, what do we glean from it? What do we learn from it? What would God want us to take from this and how would we apply it to our lives beyond just the reality that Jesus is going to build his church and no conflict's going to stop it? Beyond that, which is, the, I think, the biggest blessing or the biggest application to this passage is God's building his church, is what do we take away now from it? So here we go. I want to help you see a little bit of both. So here, here's what we decided. Principle number one that we took from this. Because we see this elsewhere in Scripture, it is the role of the pastor or elder or overseer to preach and pray. And you guys know we've talked about this before. We have four. We do elsewhere in Scripture. It is to teach, to preach. I'm sorry, to, to teach, which is preaching, to pray, to equip the saints, and to care for the saints, care for the church. So there's four, but this mentions two. So we think, okay, we, we see that elsewhere in Scripture. So praying and preaching is, is the role of the pastor, and the pastor should not give up that for other things that could take up time and energy. So that's principle number one. Principle number two is it seems like God is going to gift other people other than the pastors to meet the practical needs of the people in the church. It seems that way. Because after all, Tyler, Jordan, and I are human and limited and limited in time and limited in giftedness. And that is why we need the church to work together. So what deacons do is they actually protect the pastors from getting sucked into things they're not gifted to do or don't have time to do and would sacrifice the things that God has called us to do. So another way to think about this, and I hope this is helpful, is pastors lead, deacons facilitate, but don't forget the last step. Members then do the ministry because Ephesians 4 is still true. Equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so as we study and try to put it all together, we realize, okay, what seems like happens is pastors lead and oversee, but then deacons actually bring things about in the church to happen. They facilitate it by recruiting members to do the work of the ministry. That's kind of how it works together. It seems like that's how Scripture describes it, working together. And that seems to be the pattern here in Acts 6, that they seem to they, they work together this way. That's principle 
two. Principle number three is this. The main issue in Acts 6 is keeping unity. It's keeping unity. There was a complaint. There was a division in the church. Can you imagine a church with division? There was division in the church. And the deacons are the ones that came alongside. If they're deacons here, it seems like it would parallel with the other verses we've read. They're unity keepers. One of their main roles is to keep unity, to build unity, to do things to serve that bring unity in the church. Now, I want to hear this clearly. The gospel gives us our unity. We are unified by the gospel. All a deacon does is keep us in the unity of the gospel. They maintain the unity of Jesus. They're not seeking to create unity. Deacons are those people in the church that see potential conflict or issues, and they know how to bring the gospel into those to bring unity and to bring peace. I mean, this is what Jesus prayed in John 17. He said, I do not ask for these only. He's praying for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We're people who believe in Jesus through the apostles' word. Then he says that they, all, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why unity, he says? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus prays for unity so that the world will believe that the Father sent the Son. Then you get to Acts 6. There seems to be a potential disunity. They solve the problem, bring about unity, and how does the story end? The church grows. People see that the Father sent Jesus. The very, very thing that Jesus prayed for happens in Acts 6. It's a fulfillment of the prayer. So that's how deacons functioned here. Let me try to give you a little example. And at this point, we don't have any deacons. I don't even know what the deacon categories are going to be, to be honest. And that's why we want, Tyler Jordan and I want your help in even figuring out what are the categories that we need help with? What, what do we need deacons to be doing? So let's just pretend for a moment that we had a deacon of facilities, someone who was in charge of the buildings, and then maybe we had somebody else who was deacon of property, of the property that we have. Some of this obviously is raised to the surface over the summer as we realize we're going to own all of this and we've got to figure out what we're going to do with it. So let's just suppose that happened. And suppose the, the, the deacon of facilities led his team and they realized we really got to get this parking lot repaved. It's getting hard for people to get in and out of the building. Kids can't shoot hoops in the parking lot. All these good reasons why we really need to get the parking lot redone. Something's got to happen out there. It's a mess. And then the deacons of facilities said, man, our bathrooms are falling apart. You can't even get really a wheelchair in there. If somebody came in and they needed it, what would we do? And so they, they have their plan. And then we realized, well, we don't have money for both, but we have to pick one. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a church where there's been a division over how to spend the money. I have. Because you're going to have two groups of people, both very well-meaning, very much believing in their task that they have to fulfill. Parking lot, bathrooms are both important, right? You're glad you could park this morning. If you need to go, you're glad you can go, right? Important stuff. And the money can only go one way. The deacon who leads that is most concerned about one thing, unity. That's their biggest concern. So when they lead their team through how this decision is going to unfold, they're not leading their team, if I'm the deacon of facilities, I'm not leading my team going, look, if we don't get the money, it's okay because the parking lot's important too. It really is. That's the reason why it's really a good thing. 
That's not how that deacon leads. The deacon goes, the gospel is our unity. Jesus is our unity. So if the money goes to them, it doesn't matter because Jesus is the hub of what we're doing. We're unified because of him, not because of where the money goes. Do you see the difference? Do you sense the difference? Uh, a deacon is looking at the unity of the church as the most important thing and realizes that only happens through the gospel. It cannot happen any other way. It has to happen that way. You guys have seen this in churches where there's a limited amount of space, and on Tuesday morning, group A wants to use it and group B wants to use it. And somebody's got to decide who gets to use it. And what happens? Usually, in my experience, there's an awful lot of fighting going on and who gets to use it. And then whoever gets to use it obviously thinks their ministry was more important than the group who didn't get to use it. And you start to cause conflict in the church because it starts to become about whose ministry is more important as opposed to the gospel being what brings the importance. So a deacon is someone who is primarily able to see whether there's a potential for any kind of division or conflict or not unity, lack of unity, and knows how to make the gospel, Jesus, what really is what unifies us so that everything else falls into its rightful space. I don't know helpful or not. This could really go bad, and then you're going to always think about hula hoops when you think about deacons. I'd rather have you think about Jesus than hula hoops, but it's almost as if a deacon is someone who realizes, pretend this is Jesus, pretend this hula hoop is the gospel, who realizes this is what unifies us, and I want to keep everybody in the hula hoop. I want to keep everybody unified in the gospel. There's all these other things that could potentially try to be a unifying factor. I've I've been in churches where we have building programs and money goes into the building program and talk goes into the building program and everything is about the building program and then the building is built and everyone kind of stands around and doesn't really know quite to do at that point because their unity, their mission was about the building. I've been there. I've lived through it. If the gospel remains what unifies, the deacon's role is to say, my goal is to bring everybody into the gospel. This is what's unifying, not the other stuff. That's secondary. This is what unifies. So I'm going to bring everybody else. If I see people drifting from the gospel, their potential conflict from the gospel, I'm going to go to them. I'm going to say, I'm bringing you into the gospel. I'm going to remind you that Jesus is the most important thing there is. There is nothing else more important. Bathrooms don't matter in the end. We can pee in the woods. The parking lot doesn't matter. We can park in the grass. Right? So... When you think about deacon, please be thinking that way. And, here, and here's why. It, 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 it links into, if they're unity keepers, to this fourth issue, fourth principle, and that's this. There are qualifications for those who serve this way. Did you see the qualifications in Acts? Pick people who are, have a good reputation, are full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. That's the qualifications. It's not, hey, go find people who know widows. Find people who don't know widows. Find people who are good with money. Find people who know how to, how to assess how much somebody needs so they can give them the right amount. That's not the categories. It's character. Just like in 1 Timothy, here in Acts, it's about the person's character. You want deacons to have the right character because they're peacekeepers in the gospel. They're, they're, everything they're doing, they're thinking, how can this breed unity around the gospel? How can this be a gospel issue? How can I make this about the gospel? The gospel is the most important thing, not the issue that seems to be at hand. I heard Tyler say this a bunch of times when we were meeting over those couple of days, talking through some of this stuff. He said, we would rather have somebody who's in charge of facilities, who knows nothing about facilities, but knows how to bring gospel unity, than someone who knows everything about facilities and doesn't know how to bring gospel unity. Now, obviously, we'd like to have both. 
But if you don't, I'd rather have somebody who's in charge of the buildings who knows how to make unity happen by reminding people that the gospel is our unity than somebody who's really good at managing a building. And that's where I think that whole, you guys have heard like the business side of the church and then there's the non-business side of the church. I think this is where it gets mixed up sometimes. Because in this sense, the most important thing is the person's character. Because whoever that person is, we want to know that they are above reproach. We want to know that they have a good reputation. They're trusted by everyone. We want to know their heart is in the right place in what they're doing. Far more important than any gifting that the person may or may not have. And so I am very grateful this morning, very grateful that back in the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you caught it, it said, let them be tested first. And we caught that phrase. In other words, don't just throw people into the, into the role of deacon. Let them be tested first. Well, guess what? Many of you have been through a 10-year test or an eight-year test, or a seven-year test, or a four-year test, or maybe it's only been a year test, but you've been through a test, and you've been tested. And as Tyler, Jordan, and I were looking through the, the list of members, we were like, so who doesn't qualify? Like, we have so many people in this church. You meet the qualifications. You, you want gospel unity. You're here, I believe, and you've only lasted 10 years is because all you've heard me talk about is Jesus and the gospel. <laughs> and that's what you want. <laughs> because I don't have anything else to offer that's worth anything. No razzle-dazzle, right? This is about Jesus. And so I I feel like the character qualifications are here in so, so, so many of you that you've been tested. It's been years of testing. And now we think there's a great opportunity for us to, Tyler, Jordan, and I, to empower or to help you to use your gifts in specific ways. Now we're in year 10 for some of you to rise up to serve as official roles as deacons so that all the other deacons in the church who aren't going to have the office of deacon can deacon with you. Does that make sense? To form little, little Greek deacon groups. And I don't know what they're going to look like. Tyler, Drew, and I were saying we think there's some that are going to come and go. There's some that are going to come and stay. There's some where the person who is the deacon leading a ministry might only be on the, doing it for a year. Someone else might do it for three years. Someone else will say, I'll do it as long as you want me to. There's no formula in Scripture, so we just want to be open to what God wants us to do and what it looks like so that ministry can be deployed, so that people can be cared for in different ways. So we've got some ideas on things like, yes, there's facility upkeep, the use of this building and being rented out. How would we use that? Um, Meeting the practical needs of members, finances, all the things that happen here on Sunday, hospitality, and I'm sure you have other ideas of things that will help bring gospel unity or maintain, better said, gospel unity. Unity, things that will push the mission of the church forward, the going and growing mission of the church forward. And so tomorrow night, nope, Wednesday night, that's what we want to do. We want to meet in here and really brainstorm, first review and apply the passage, make sure we all are on the same page biblically, theologically, and then to start talking a little bit, get some brainstorm going about, okay, what are the categories that we think we need as a church in order, to, in order for people to serve, to be serving in ways that maybe we are right now and it would help just to have a deacon lead it, or new ways that we haven't thought of. And we want you to come, whether or not you ever think you will be a deacon as an office, or whether you just want to come help us figure out what the deacons could look like and what their office might look like. Does that make sense? So if you come on Wednesday night, I'm not going to take that big uh, red Sharpie that I have and put the D on your forehead. I'm not going to do it. Because some of you may come and say, yeah, I think I do want to do that. And some of you, we want you here, and if you're not, because we need your input. Because we want to build this really, really with all of us working on it together. 
Tyler, Jordan, and I don't want to sit in a room, right, on our own and try to do this. Like, hmm, what do you think the category should be and who should we recruit to do different things? We think that it actually defeats the whole purpose of having deacons, right? The point is to have you and us together figure out, for us to oversee, but for you guys to figure out where, where are the gifts and what are the things that need to happen in order for our church to push this gospel mission forward um, in, in helping each other grow and in reaching the lost. So I want everyone to raise your right hand and say, I promise to be here Wednesday night. <laughs> if you can, love to have you. 6.45 here. We usually only meet for an hour, hour and change, so we'll get in here, get started quick, and start praying and talking. So if you can come on Wednesday, that would be very helpful. How long was that? How long? Oh, boy. Too long. Questions? How many of you guys, I'm not going to ask you your question, but how many of you heard all that and go, I got questions? And you guys got questions? You can bring them Wednesday. I'm just curious. Like, okay, good. You got some questions. Questions are good. All right. So when we gather on Wednesday, bring your questions. We want to talk about it. We want to view the passage. We want to apply the passage and get going in this area of our lives. And primarily, I hope you leave with two things. One is that Jesus is the deacon, and deacons are about gospel unity.